Welcome to Fandom and Wellness, a podcast about the complex relationship between fandom and mental health. Disclaimer, we are not psychiatrists or psychologists. We are just fangirls with a vested interest in mental health. I'm Jenny. I'm Danielle. And this episode, we'll be discussing The Good Place. And we have a super special guest with us, Constance Gibbs. Hello. Thank you for having me, you guys. I'm excited. Let's do this. Thanks for being on. Yeah. So Jenny and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. What are your pronouns? She, her, hers. Thank you. And can you just share with our audience a little bit about yourself? Okay. I am a writer, like in my day job, I write for a children's magazine and I edit for a website called Black Girls Create, where we do critical fandom and like fan fiction pieces and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. I am an all around nerd, Hufflepuff, Enneagram 9, INFJ, all those things tell you exactly what you need to know about me. Super introverted. And yeah, I do all sorts of stuff like writing on the internet, sometimes for the nerds of color and for other like nerdy websites and talk about love talking about tv and movies and stuff so that's probably it in a nutshell there's probably more that i'm forgetting (laughs) we'll we'll peel back the layers like an onion yes yes like an onion i know who you are now and jenny feel free to edit this out but it's because i've messaged black girls create a bunch of times and i share a bunch of your things constantly yes (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate it (laughs) we've been meaning to do this episode for a while It's like a big show to tackle because it tackles some extremely big concepts. And we kept looking for like the perfect guest (laughs) for this. Also, this is an all Hufflepuff show. It is an all Hufflepuff podcast today. Yeah. I'm constantly surrounded by Ravenclaws. I think this is the perfect episode for all Hufflepuffs episode. But I found out that Constance wrote an article. You interviewed William Jackson Harper about The Good Place, which must have been really exciting. It was. I was just super nervous. And I remember I was coming home from work and like literally the subways. I live in New York City and the subways weren't working and I was trying to get home. And so I took a bus trying to get home and like it took an over an hour and the publicist was like, can you do it 15 minutes earlier than we said? And I was like, I think so, but I'm not home yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, it was extra stressful, but it, it, I got home on time and we made it and he was great. He was really nice. Was it before or after the shirtless episode? After. I did my very best to, it was recently, it was two episodes or so before the finale. And I didn't bring it up because I've read other interviews with him. And it makes him so uncomfortable. And I was like, well, I would be nice. (laughs) But it's been a problem because there was some recent post on his Instagram or maybe some other Instagram and I got real distracted. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, incredibly jacked. (laughs) Oh, man. One of my favorite jokes in that show is why he got so jacked. Yes. Someone told him it would relieve stress. So he just started working out and never stopped. Amazing. So funny. Yes, I wanted to ask you why you love The Good Place. Okay. Well, I think it just starts with Mike Schur, because I'm a huge fan of Parks and Rec, and that is my favorite show. And so when I was like, oh, Mike Schur's doing a show, and I didn't catch it until after the first season, but that was dumb. 
I just have always had an interest in very casual, very pop culture-y interest in people and how they work. And and I guess some psychology, like I took a psych class in college and did well in it, but then didn't pursue it any further. Story of my life. <laughs> right. Like I was just like, oh, I'm doing great. Let's keep it at that and <laughs> not get any further. I also wanted to do psych when I was like in high school and said I did fashion. <laughs> I mean, valid. And yeah, I think it's just like a really smart show that, you know, as I listen to the Good Place podcast and me too, it's so good. Mark Evan Jackson always says it's the smartest, dumbest show on television. And it's so true because, yeah, there's just the way that they do humor is I really appreciate because it is like really intellectual jokes that like only nerds would know. But also like there are sports references that I don't know and really dumb jokes that anyone could laugh at and good characters and stuff. And I feel like, wait, I had a thought. Oh, I really like what they've always said about like not punching down on their characters and stuff. I think that was really great in the way that like Jason's super dumb, but he's not stupid. They don't like treat him like he's stupid (laughs) in the way that a lot of shows would. So just the way that they like care for their characters really comes through when you're watching it. And so those are some of the reasons I'm sure I'm missing many because I've been like fangirling and preaching about this show like since the end of season one. (laughs) I love that they hid so much from the cast. Yeah. The podcast is really cool to listen to. I actually, I didn't listen to it along with the episodes. I listened, I like marathon style listened to it when preparing for this episode. And there's just like a lot of little interesting tidbits that you find out. Yeah. On it. Like almost no one in the cast knew about the season one finale. Yeah, it was just Kristen and Ted. And then they like revealed it to everyone else, like right before they were going to shoot it or something. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, the podcast is so good, especially with the conversations we're going to have, like a lot of the the insights of where they came up with this stuff really is like revealed and how they came up with the ideas and people they spoke to and all that stuff is on the, that they're the good place, the podcast. And I, I love it so much. Like they put out some episode a few weeks ago, like, oh, another conversation with Mark Evan Jackson and Ted Danson. And I was like, yes, I needed this. <laughs> yeah. And like, I think that. One of the reasons why it's such a good show, which you find out a lot about on the podcast, and it goes along with the whole like punching up instead of down, is that like everyone on the crew works so well together and there's no real like hierarchy. They always go with the best idea, no matter who it's from. Yeah, and I really love that. So make sure is never like my idea is what we're doing. It's always whoever comes up with the best idea or like if an actor is like words something better, they always go with it which is really cool because most shows are not operated like that, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, I am also a big fan of Mike Shore. I think he's progressively gotten better at making shows and also making them more progressive in general. With The Good Place, you see that with Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And he's also very good at creating lovable characters and extremely interesting and fun relationships between those characters. Speaking of characters, who are your favorite characters? Chidi and Janet, I think they just represent two sides of me, the anxious side and the slightly robotic side. (laughs) Just like, I'm just like understanding feelings (laughs) and like observing how other people express feelings and then trying to mirror that. It's very, those two like sides, I think, represent me really succinctly. And so those are my two favorites. Yeah. Oh my God, you worded that so well. 
I also really love Janet because, as I've said before, I like non-human characters becoming human. It's my kink. It's the best. It's always because when you have these non-human characters becoming more human, you have to think about what makes someone human. You have to think about what makes someone a good human. <laughs> like, And Janet has that robotic side that is also makes her extremely funny, but also the human side, which makes her extremely emotional. And she wants to help. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the Hufflepuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all just huge Janet stands here. <laughs> oh, and Darcy Carden just can act like no other. I'm just also a fan of her, like as a human. She's so sweet. And something that they say on the podcast is that she just like, cries at everything yeah. oh no as i say on the podcast i'm a big Honey. fan of crying so and then like when she did the janet's episode and she like had to embody like every other character oh my god i was just like wow i haven't enjoyed a performance like this since tatiana maslani like she must she fully maslanied it and i appreciated that yeah it was incredible that was pretty good especially when she was pretending to be eleanor pretending, pretending to be, to be jason, jason. <laughs> incredible the levels to it were so good i also love uh jason menzuka just because <laughs> yes i do love dumb characters a lot too because usually they're so funny and they're also very pure and non-malicious and that's just a nice character to like experience the dumb like innocent one is always very different than the dumb evil one there's no way for a dumb character to really be innocent. They're just like so opposite, like that idea. Yeah. There's also different types of dumb too. And I think those are two different types of dumb. One is more like, like in Jason's case, lack of foresight <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> While other maybe lack of intelligence or I don't think he's necessarily dumb. I also don't believe in intelligence and like levels of intelligence based on, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, he was also like born yesterday. Jason Mizuka's character, he's like brand new to the world. So he's like. Oh, yeah. Derek. Derek, thank you. Because we're saying Jason. I like, cannot remember his. Okay. Were you talking about Jason Mizuka? Yeah. I was talking about Jason. <laughs> I know that you were talking about Jason. Okay. That's why I kept saying Jason Mizuka's whole name. <laughs> Yet, I did not register it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like not sure at what point we started talking about Mazuka and then the other one. I thought you said there were like two types of dumb or whatever. Right. So I thought you were like comparing them. <laughs> oh, no. Jenny was talking about evil dumb and innocent dumb. But they are, those two are two different types of dumb. So it was all the same conversation. It just slightly veered to the left a little bit. But it made sense overall. Obviously, like, we can't talk about the show without talking about philosophy. There's obviously a lot of different philosophical ideas in the show that Chidi talks about. But the main ones that Michael Shore talks, like, kind of, like, bases this show on are, one, something called contractualism, which is the idea that we act morally. Ooh, the idea is that to act morally is to abide by principles that no one else could reasonably reject. So this is based on a book called What We Owe to Each Other by T.M. Scanlon. And it's basically like empathy, right? It's basically like we have a duty to each other to be kind to each other and to create rules in our society that everyone can live by. 
And that's basically what they do this entire show. They literally built entire afterlife system that everyone could exist in, be judged in, but also grow in and eventually get to the good place. Yeah, it's trying to do a lot. And it does it so well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You would think that the idea of a comedy show about philosophy wouldn't work. But I think the one person who could pull it off is Mike Schur. Yeah. It's the idea that, like you said, comedy doesn't have to punch down. Morality and comedy can exist in the same plane. I want to read this quote from Michael Schur. He says, If you could really boil down good behavior and bad behavior in a big umbrella kind of way, it seems to have a lot to do with empathy and a general sense of the way your actions affect other people and vice versa. So when they went to write The Bad Place Crew, they started with like zero empathy and then kind of like made their way up. And like, I didn't know this, but apparently there's two types of empathy. I've always recognized it as like, one type, which is the emotional type, where you feel the same emotion as another person, usually like feeling the same distress and feeling compassion for them. And then there's like a cognitive empathy, which is when you can take the perspective of others, but you don't necessarily feel it. I guess that's not even compassion. That's just acknowledgement of someone else's distress. I thought it was the difference between like sympathy and empathy, but I guess sympathy is still more surface level than the perspective part. Right, because you don't have to do anything about it. You can just recognize it. Yeah, so in cognitive empathy, you're basically, you're not trying to, like, give advice or something like you would with sympathy. You're To the other person, you're acting in the same way, but inside you feel differently with cognitive versus emotional. You can use cognitive empathy in ways that are malicious towards others in that you can recognize how someone else is feeling and use that to get your way. Eleanor will be able to recognize how other people are feeling, but use it to like get what she needs and what she wants. While Chidi experiences too much emotional <laughs> empathy. I've got a stomach ache. The anxiety part, man, just Chidi just expressed a lot of emotions that go out in my head. Fork in the dishwasher was honestly just a revelation of a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> His constant inability to make decisions, like the anxiety over that, is so relatable. Sometimes I wish that there were just like one brand of things and it was like, here is the toothpaste. You don't have to choose between them. Here it is. That's why I mentioned being an Enneagram 9 because that is the like big fault of an Enneagram 9 is not being able to make decisions. Yeah, I really felt that. Just there's a meme going around, like whenever we're allowed to go back outside, you should know what restaurant you want to go to because you had all this time to decide. And I'm like, no, that is not how it works. (laughs) I wasn't thinking about that. (laughs) Yeah, I order the same thing every time I go to a restaurant. No, I would like to choose different things, but I need more time than I'm allowed to decide. Maybe there'll be two different things, but even that is pretty frustrating for me. Oh, no. When it's two different things. Oh, no. That's a disaster. (laughs) I had to sit there and be like, God, which one do I want? Which one do I want? Exactly. And you know I'll regret it. (laughs) Whichever one I make. I'm not someone who like goes to a restaurant and is like, let me try the new thing. I'm like, no, Chinese food. This is what I'm getting. Japanese food. This is what I'm getting. Indian food. This is what I'm getting. Anytime I try something new, though, I usually end up regretting it. So that's why I try to get uh, somewhat the same things. I don't. I usually like it, but it's too hard. Cheaty problems. 
Yeah, he like, while Eleanor needs to learn emotional empathy and like understand the consequences of her actions and words, Chidi needs to kind of learn that you can be a good person without feeling bad. Which I think is a lesson that a lot of people could learn. Did you say that to me last night? <laughs> yeah, I think I did. <laughs> Just like certain people I know, he has a tendency to take on the world's problems like they are his own. Uh, Jenny's personally attacking me right now on the podcast. Wow. I'm a witness. Your honor, I saw it myself. Anyway... 100% correct. And so he feels like he needs to feel what other people feel in order to be a good person and to understand what they're going through. When you can understand what they're going through without taking all those bad feelings onto yourself. So like in the beginning of the show, the only thing they have in common is Eleanor and Chidi. Chidi is that Chide? <laughs> That's what I call him. Eleanor and Chidi is that they're both extremely lonely and like have trouble getting along with other people. I think he has one friend. <laughs> he has one friend. He had one friend and then that like professor who wanted to be his friend who gave him the red cowboy boots. Yes. And those were the only two people. Somehow he had a girlfriend at some point, but then he like pushed her away. Yeah. Eventually, over time, they change because Eleanor chooses to team up with Chidi and chooses to ask him. And at first, he's, she's unwilling to learn how to be good. But she actually does eventually go to him to learn how to be good. And Chidi also, he was always willing to help other people. But she's able to learn to let go a little more. I like this quote that he says, I was dropped into a cave and you were my flashlight. So romantic. Something I, I don't really understand and maybe you can help me understand is like, why is Chidi in the bad place for having anxiety? I mean, we later find out that everyone goes to the bad place. I get that because he had anxiety, it tortured his friends and therefore he deserves to be in the bad place. Right. That is exactly why he's in the bad place. Yeah, I think it's probably like the first clue that something's wrong because everyone else kind of has like legitimate reasons and Chidi's never really sticks as much as you think it should. And so I think it's like one of the first like hints that like, yeah, something is definitely wrong beyond like Eleanor ending up here. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have drank almond milk or whatever he was saying. You know, and then it's just like the point system literally just doesn't have any like empathy, I guess, <laughs> because it doesn't like take into account other parts of you. It just takes into account the points. And then because so many things in the world are screwed up, there's no way to get more points than you lose points because you drank almond milk and it was improperly sourced. And so people suffered because of that. You lose more points for that than you like gain, than I think Chidi gained for being a good professor and like being a good person in any other way. I can touch on it now because we're talking about it, but that's why I love this show is that it, morality is complex and they show that because in our modern world today, the consequences of our actions are so unpredictable and follow a line all the way back to some child in like a different country. You know what I mean? Like your actions can have a million consequences and they can echo around the world and you don't even know it. Hashtag stay inside. <laughs> stay home. 
that in itself also has its consequences. So it's impossible based on the criteria that the good place has placed on people for entry to fucking enter the good place, which is like, I was actually expecting that in the TV show because I was like, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I also wanted to talk about Jason and Janet because they also lack empathy Janet, because she's a robot. Not a girl, not a robot. And Jason, because he doesn't understand the consequences of his actions and has no foresight whatsoever. I would say, I guess he lacks cognitive empathy, though, because I think he has emotional empathy. Like, he can understand what you're feeling, but he can't really, like, tell you how to... No, I guess he can tell you how to do it right, but he doesn't realize that. He's not quite aware that he's like actually helping you, but he'll do it by accident. He has one type, but not the other. And I think it's probably about like follow through or like you said, the foresight to like actually know what the other person is going through. He just like reacts. Yeah, I mean, like there's scenes with Tahani and stuff like the one scene where he tells her that she's like being really hard on herself and that she should be nicer to herself. You should be nicer to yourself. And that's like really meaningful to her. Yeah. Also... The concept that robots can, like, learn, it's just, like, AI learning, right? Robots can learn things over time. They can teach themselves things over time. See, when you put it that way, it gets scary. It's true! I was just thinking of all the Janets taking over, and I was like, nah, not that upset about it. (laughs) Right. I keep meaning to rewatch iRobot, but it might be too triggering at this point. But I too like that because one of my favorite things is Janelle Monet as a human, but also like her discography tells a story of a futuristic robot that like learns how to love and then it's illegal. So she must go in time and yada yada there's a whole story and so that character i've always loved because it's just like an android that like learns how to feel again this is why i like janet when it's like a human or like a humanoid creature it's less scary when it's janelle monet or darcy Carden as opposed to like the ai in your alexa (laughs) 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 then it's like oh no skynet I feel like Skynet, this is off topic, only learns the bad parts of humanity, I guess, while Janet learns the good, I guess. Yeah. Right? If robots were going to take over... What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) This is a podcast about mental health. What's going on? (laughs) My mind just left my body there for a second. Listen, the android, the AI apocalypse is something that affects people's mental health sometimes. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It is a concern that people have. But yeah, a big concept on the show is teaching, essentially. And that like these different pairs teach each other things. Yeah, and the willingness to learn. Yes. I mean, you can just learn stuff. I think in the beginning, Eleanor is capable of learning, like just naturally, because she's however smart or whatever. But I think the willingness to actually care about what you're learning about is also a, a theme of the show. Yeah. And just like getting better, like anyone's capable of getting better. Yeah, so then, I mean, we were talking about the point system a little earlier, but going back to it, one of the reasons why the point system doesn't make any sense is because it's so black and white, and that's not really how the world is. Like, the world isn't good versus evil. There's, like, obviously a lot of gray areas. So basically, like, a point system just ignores that everyone is a complex being with their own experiences and that everyone's imperfect, and even the most selfless people are still hoping to do what will most fulfill them. Yeah, point system. Trash. (laughs) (laughs) 
super trash. I don't know. Did you think about like the concept of good versus evil while you were watching it? I guess it's just interesting because, you know, I grew up Christian and still have a basic belief in the ideas of heaven and hell. And I guess that's evolving as I get older. Just like, I don't know, I'm I'm such a Hufflepuff. I'm just like, no, everyone has the, I'm just like the show. I'm just like, everyone has the potential to be good. And like, why does this particular action mean that you can't still be good and like go to the good place? Yeah, like different cultures have such different views on what happens. It varies differently, but it's like there's often a good place and a bad place. And I know that the show very purposefully tried to make it like a little bit of everything. And like no one was right except for Doug Forsett, <laughs> who was high off shrooms and got 94% right or 97% right or something. But yeah, I like the idea of the show allowing for growth because they eventually, by the end of the series, it's basically like you're allowed to grow in hell like you're allowed to learn how to be a good person and level out of the bad place. But also in the good place, you can still learn and grow and learn how to do whatever you want and experience new experiences, which obviously change and affect you as a person and like as a being. And then you get to decide like what to, to end with all or whatever. And so that's like both sides have like this level of like, you're always learning and growing. And I appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah, I think a good quote from Michael would be, what matters isn't if people are good or bad. What matters is if they're trying to be better today than they were yesterday. Uh, he's like, you asked where my hope comes from. That's my answer. It's interesting because with the point system, like when they reset everything uh, after they realize everything is messed up and they're trying to decide what to do, or the judge is trying to decide what to do about heaven. And even when they meet Doug Forsack and he like has realized what the point system is, at that point, like they're trying to do good so they can get to like the good place or heaven or whatever which means like their points can't go up because they know it's there it's like they're not actually trying to do what's morally kind which is kind of problematic like they're just existing to make sure they get into the better place yeah it comes around to like a selfish reason which is why tahani ended up in the bad place obviously the point system is broken but like the reason why you know that they presented most strongly of why she's in the bad place is like despite like raising so much money for charity and everything she had such selfish reasons for it and i think that gets really interesting with minnie sinclair and it's like she was a terrible person and then did one night of insane drugs and came up with a great idea that did really good things in the world. I guess when she was coming up with this idea, it was completely selfless. And so that's why they're stuck on which way to center because it wasn't to get into the good place. Like she wasn't trying to like make a point or get a claim. She just had this great idea <laughs> and then died. <laughs> If the point system is so black and white, why should it even matter if the reason is selfish versus selfless? I was thinking a lot about intent and because they seem to put a lot of emphasis on intent. And I don't actually think intent is that important. I think Tahani shouldn't have been in the bad place. I also don't think she should have. It doesn't matter that her intent was to be better than her sister or whatever, as long as she did the good. Well, because I think there are levels to intent, right? So like with Tahani, like intent definitely matters. But I think in her instance, it shouldn't have mattered. I agree that it shouldn't have mattered because it was just about her sister who also shouldn't have ended up in the good place, like wouldn't have based on like her actions and the way that she's like 
kind of mean to her sister just because like she's the better sister to her parents. She was no better than Tahani in that way. And like none of the stuff that she did was really to help those people. It made her the better sister. Like it just consistently made her better <laughs> than Tahani. So she just kept doing it and getting the praise from her parents. But it wasn't about actually helping people like that was neither of their intentions. But they did help a lot of people. And so I think they could have gotten into the good place, but neither one had like selfless intentions. And I think it matters for, you know, if they were raising money to help people because they wanted to like use the money to like hurt other people, then (laughs) I think intent definitely matters. But neither of their intents were that harmful to like a lot of people. You know, I think it matters how many people you intend to harm, but also end up harming. And they were kind of just harming each other as opposed to, you know, having innocent intent and ending up harming lots and lots of people, which I think would be a cause for ending up in the bad place. But because their intent what didn't end up hurting millions of people for any reason or thousands or whatever, it's kind of like an internal family drama. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it would have should have lessened their the point total against them. Yeah. I was going to say one more Michael quote because Michael has some of the best quotes maybe the best quotes of the series, but it feels very relative to Hani and I guess like why she shouldn't be in the bad place. But the point is people improve when they get external love and support. How can we hold it against them when they don't? Like the whole reason why Tahani and her sister are the way they are was because their parents just like did not show them love. And pitted them against each other. So when you create that environment for them, they can grow, <laughs> which is what the four of them did together. I also wanted to touch on the other philosophical idea that Mike Shore kind of like bases this show on, which is virtue ethics, which is living up to what it is to be a good human being by cultivating and reflecting deeply human virtues. (laughs) It's Aristotle, which is like, sure. (laughs) Aristotelianism? Yeah. (laughs) Aristotelianism. I didn't even try. (laughs) That's the one. So virtues are basically character traits and tendencies to act in a particular way. So it's like truthfulness, wittiness, patience, friendliness. Those are like virtues that I feel like towards the end, they were kind of like doing a combination of both this concept and contractualism in which they were trying to gain a lot of virtues too and become like the best person they could be. And I think that also like is working toward like happiness as well because they were trying to work toward a point in their existence in which they were happy with what they've done and who they are. That's where the virtues come in. A virtue is technically defined as the golden mean between a vice and a deficiency. So if you're courageous, it's the midpoint between cowardice and recklessness. So you can see Jason being on the extreme side of courage to the point of recklessness. Chidi is interesting because I don't know whether, I don't think I would call him a coward, but certainly the opposite of reckless (laughs) to the point where he is always staying still. All of them having these lack of virtues in the beginning. I think Eleanor had a lot of deficiencies, (laughs) let's just say. (laughs) In terms of she was someone who lied a lot, who didn't care about other people. And you see the others also have kind of like a lack of virtue in a lot of different ways. But like if we go to like the finale, we'll see that Jason becomes literally apparently the most patient man in the world. When he popped out from the tree, I'm like, I want to cry. (laughs) I'm like, excuse me? And the idea that 
he would wait that long for Janet was amazing. I also, as an aside, really loved her line about how time doesn't exist quite the same for her. So she kind of like is living every moment at the same time almost. And she remembers every moment so clearly, unlike human memory. That it's like she's living it right now. That's crazy. Would that be her showing cognitive empathy? Oh, I think it could be because I think it is both true, but also could be a thing that she says to make Jason feel better. She definitely says it to make him feel better. Yeah. So she understands what he's going through. But I'm also wondering if she could at that point because she's so advanced. I think it would definitely be more cognitive. But I do wonder if there's like an actual emotional empathy there because she's grown and like had so many reboots and stuff. She went from just the person who offers advice whenever you need empathy to the person who offers empathy when you need empathy. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Another virtue is justice, which is like the lies between selfishness and selflessness. And that obviously goes hand in hand with empathy. They all learned how to kind of balance between being extremely selfish and only thinking for yourself and thinking of only other people and not caring about yourself, which is in Chi's case. You can see that with Eleanor, of course, because she like is only able to go when everyone else is happy and Chidi is no longer racked with indecisiveness in the end because he, he like makes a final decision. He knows what he has to do. He does like choose to stay for Eleanor, but it's kind of like his choice to put her before him almost, which is interesting. But and yeah, he doesn't like feel the immense guilt over it. It's just the thing he decided to do as opposed to feeling compelled to do because he felt guilty. Like the way his calmness in all of that was very much like, I'm going to stay because you want me to, but I would like to go as opposed to, all right, I'll stay. Like it wasn't as like pressured as he would normally <laughs> feel <Right>. like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's also really cool that Chidi doesn't hesitate when it's finally time for him to like walk through the door. Right, bitch. I would be like, Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> like, am I ready? I don't know. I'm not ready yet. <laughs> yeah, he finally like he has his mind made up and he just goes because he knows. Yeah. We haven't talked a lot about Michael and his journey, but like he probably had one of the biggest journeys from demon to human. Michael was kind of like the viewer, I guess, because he was like watching this TV show over and over and over again, like wanting to be a part of it as he watched it and like developing empathy and wanting to understand why they did the things they did and who they are. But also reveling in the chaos that happens when things go wrong, which is why we watch television. I really do love the way that this show is like, it really encapsulates the experience of watching television, like so many things about it. Because Michael, I mean, it's just funny that his name is Michael. And I'm like, that was the thing, right? And I feel like at some point they're like, no, it wasn't the thing. But I feel like it had to have been because he's like the puppet master, like making everything like go cakes, go to chaos, which is literally what the showrunner of a TV show does. Like it's the same job. Exactly. It's all about Mike Scher's like, you know, growth into from like a Harvard, like comedian bro to like being an empathetic showrunner. Like that's just about what this journey is about. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that works. That's what it is. He also like has some great like existential moments that are perfect and like I feel to the core. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> You're just like, I'm stuck in my feelings. Yeah. How did you feel when you watched the finale? I think I felt at peace in a way that I so rarely do during a TV finale, because I think a lot of times shows during their finales are trying to one-up something that they've done. And obviously, The Good Place does that in a lot of ways. But I had a lot of, I guess, anxiety because finale episodes can go so wrong. They can really like ruin an entire show <laughs> in two very famous instances, How I Met Your Mother and Game oh, of Thrones. My God. And so like, I feel like there was a lot of nervousness there. But I also, again, Parks and Rec is one of my favorite shows. And that was a really good finale for the show. Like, I think the finale just has to match what your show is, really. And both of those, Good Place and Parks and Rec, I had faith that Parks and Rec would, I mean, that The Good Place would pull it off, but I was still obviously nervous because I'm like, this show that is so unique and kind of unheard of, and it could technically go off the rails. <laughs> and so there was like a piece at that that I felt relief about and did perfectly for what it set out to do and for the characters that it established and like had grow into could be like they're better versions of themselves. Yeah, definitely. Like it showed Eleanor becoming completely selfless. Like you said, not being able to leave until everyone else was happy. I definitely had the strongest reaction to Hani's parents apologizing without giving any type of excuse for their behavior. No buts. <laughs> no buts. They just apologized. That was really emotional for me. I love Tahani. I also love Jamila, the actress. So good. Is there one that you guys had like a strongest reaction to? For me, it was probably the, what the wall, because Jason was technically the first one and I didn't realize that was what they were going to do. I was like, uh, uh, I don't think so, honey. I don't think so. Yeah. It was just as when I realized they were actually going ahead with it. Cause obviously I want them to live happily ever after, but. They do make a good point that you can't live happily ever after, that death comes for us all, and <laughs> we need to learn to let go of these characters, and they helped us let go of them that way. Yeah. I think, actually, the biggest emotional thing was how meta the episode was. That for me, just like, at some point earlier last year, they're like, we're going to end this show at season four. And so they made a decision, as opposed to a show that, like, got the axe and, like, didn't get to finish, or they had to finish in, like, a shorter amount of episodes than you would have liked. Like, they didn't know until, like, six episodes before the finale, and so they have to rush an ending. Like, they made a conscious decision to end the show and I think that both gave it a cohesiveness in terms of the story in the whole last season, as opposed to like, suddenly there's a new arc and then we're going towards the finale, which a lot of shows have to deal with. But also they inserted it into the show, like the idea that you can decide when to go and like when to, and they put it in like just my brain keeps circuiting when I think about how they like made the thing that they did in real life the finale, the idea and the central focus of the finale of like knowing when it's time to go and just like going out with grace and like with at your best moment. I'm just like, wow, they really like put that into the show. And I'm just like, I can't. Why are they so smart? I don't understand. How do you do that? I wonder if it's because Brooklyn Nine-Nine was canceled, ended up getting renewed or picked back up or whatever. But that show was canceled while this show was running. And I wonder when the decision was made to actually make this show a set number of seasons, if it had anything to do with it. That's a good point. Yeah. 
I think they had like a basic layout of how they wanted the show to go. And I think they definitely did. They had planned out the whole show already. How many seasons it would take was going to be a question. Once you have an end to it and you hit that end, that's it. Yeah, I think it's just Mike Sure like knowing. I think he had the idea of like, I know when this could end. And I think he knows how TV often works is that they like an idea and it becomes very popular and then they want it to keep going forever and ever and ever and ever. And he's like, this idea isn't built for that. And I think he's got enough power in his position because like this show wouldn't have been made if they hadn't trusted him and like his vision and stuff. Like he talks about that, like after Parks and Rec, they were like, whatever you want. This is the show I want. And they're like, uh, <laughs> what? What is it about again? So I think both having the power to end it because of the position he has in the industry and with NBC, and then also possibly seeing like the other show that he produces and other shows, how they like suffer so badly with like not knowing how it's going to end. Because I feel like Parks was constantly on the bubble of being canceled. And so it's like, instead of having to deal with that, write a succinct story, because then like everyone gets the closure that they need as opposed to everything being like ripped away from you. (laughs) Yeah, to go into that, when I was watching like the finale, basically as soon as they decided that they were going to have like a doorway that you step through and you basically get to decide when your time has come, to me it reminded me of medical aid and dying, which Jenny and I have debated. So like the concept on the show came when Michael says to Eleanor, you said that every human is a little bit sad all the time because you know you're going to die. That knowledge what gives life meaning. And then Eleanor says the way to restore meaning to people in the good place is to let them leave. So by allowing people in the good place to leave, they're giving them back their, their autonomy instead of forcing them to like mentally waste away, which is kind of what's happened to these people in there. With medical aid in dying... Like the number one reason why people who go that route want to do that is because they feel like they have a lack of autonomy. They have to actually be screened for depression by multiple doctors before they are allowed to begin that process. Process actually takes so long that most people end up dying before they're able to even complete it. There's only eight states that you're actually allowed to have medical aid in dying that have like laws about it. Because of that, there's so many safeguards put in place, which makes sense. I mean, obviously. Reasons why I thought it was like suffering is defined by a patient, not a doctor. Hospice does not always assuage suffering. So like in the good place, the architects were constantly trying to like fix the problem by like making more and more like ridiculously happy things like unicorn puppies or like what? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't helping like how anyone there was feeling. It was just making them feel more and more uh, like they were suffering just by being there. In the good place, like people, when they found out that they had the option to leave, it basically gave them like a sense of autonomy and a sense of renewal. It let them be able to like walk through the gate when they were feeling like at peace and satisfied instead of have their brain like waste away. I think like Jason describing how he felt when he decided it was time for him to have closure. Such a good line. Yeah. To me, it really felt telling. Like you said, 
It wasn't like I heard a bell ring or anything. I just suddenly had this calm feeling, like the air inside my lungs was the same as the air outside my body. It was peaceful. In his, like, Jason way of saying it, too. Like, his the innocence in his face and the sereneness. I'm just like, wow, I feel that <laughs> watching this finale. <laughs> yeah. Medical aid in dying is not assisted suicide. And it also should never be called that when it is actually medical aid and die, <laughs> because they are two different things. <laughs> One is like, you know, a doctor uh, being like, this person is suffering, I'm going to take away their suffering. One of them is the patient being screened and getting to make those decisions themselves with while well, understanding everything they are going through and like grieving naturally, which is different than being depressed. All right, Jenny, I'm done. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on that or do you just totally disagree? I'm not saying that's definitively what they're saying by any means. I'm just saying I got like those vibes from it. Sure. You saw the parallels between the two things. Yeah. Yeah. And that is fine. (laughs) So (laughs) I understand how you can see that. I have to think a little bit more about it because I think that the idea of the good place is so removed from actual reality because in the good place... You have literally everything you want and there's like, you have everything you want. It's hard because it's such a fantastical situation to me that it's hard for me to liken it to medical aid and dying. Well, to me, it's like they have everything they want, but there's also nothing else for them. So like only terminal illness patients are eligible for this. So like only people who like a doctor can no longer do anything for and they are in constant suffering. That's why I see the parallel, because it's like, what's her name? The philosopher is talking to Chidi. Phoebe from Friends. Yeah, Phoebe from <laughs> Phoebe Friends. Phoebe from but... Friends. Oh my gosh. It's going to hurt until I get it. <laughs> She's describing their situation as like completely hopeless. They are dead. They can't go anywhere else. So they are just trapped in this situation of endless monotony. And it's almost like suffering to them because like she, her whole life was being a freaking genius. You are 100% correct in that, like, before they had the option to leave, they were suffering. Okay, I see it now. (laughs) I see it now. Once they do get that option, they have all these tools at their fingertips, while in real life, there's no other life that they can live. Yeah, obviously the difference is in the good place. When they have a sense of renewal and they can keep living, then all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, I'm in the good place and here's all this cool stuff. Let me live for as long as I want. Whereas in medical aid and dying, yeah, obviously like the next step is you die. But you still are getting the same sense of relief because you now have autonomy back. Which is like the one thing that I guess like they really want at the end of life. So that's what I'm likening it to. I'm not likening it to like, okay, they get to now like have a bunch of happy shit. Obviously. I know, I know, I know. Yes, I know what you mean. Hypatia. Patty. That's what it was. I had to Google it because it was going to kill me. Okay. It was going to hurt like wiggle in your brain. There we go. Phoebe from Friends also works. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly. I think the big mental health issue that comes to mind when I think about The Good Place is obviously Chidi's anxiety. He's probably the most distilled example I can think of in media of anxiety and indecisiveness. Um, he exhibits the key signs of generalized anxiety disorder. Constant worry and difficulty controlling that worry. Check. A need for <laughs> external validation. <laughs> That causes him to define himself by his academic accomplishments. Oh, yikes, burn. Ouch. Check. A propensity to think of negative possibilities. 
Mm, yeah, sometimes. Always. <laughs> and general restlessness. Uh-huh, yeah. Check. <laughs> oh, yeah. And obviously, when you're being diagnosed with anxiety, you have to think about how it's affected your life and whether it's affected your life, whether it's at work, socially, or in another area. And it's obviously very much affected his entire life. What does Chidi mean to you as a character? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just like checking off all those things and like all the times when I only recently come to the understanding that I have generalized anxiety disorder and looking back on times when I was like reacting because of that and didn't realize it until recently. Like I was talking to someone earlier and it's like, I live in New York City, so I don't drive because you don't have to. And so I never learned it's not part of schooling or anything. But plenty of people who grew up in New York eventually learned how to drive. And when I was 16, I got behind the wheel of a car and I made it around the parking lot once and it was fine. But I started laughing and crying at the same time. Like I couldn't pick an emotion. And so I did both of them at the same time. And it took me so long to realize that that was an anxiety attack <laughs> because I was so nervous and I still don't know how to drive 15 years later. And so it's like this thing that has prevented me from doing a thing that normal people do. Like everyone does this. And I just have such a, a fear of it. And like it obviously anxiety presents in plenty of other ways in my life. But it's probably like the biggest thing that I've not done that is just like a normal thing that people do. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a thing that everyone does and can do. And there's no like... You know, they're always like, there are plenty of people on the road who shouldn't be driving who do because it's so quote unquote easy. And uh, no, mm -mm, it's not. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so like seeing a character like Chidi, who has a terrible time making decisions, there are certain things that I have such a hard time making decision on. So I'll wait till later. And it's not as crippling as Chidi's is. Like I can eventually make a decision. Like it's not simple things like which hat. No, sometimes. <laughs> Maybe sometimes it is, but it doesn't affect me to the extreme degree of Chidi because obviously he's a TV character and I just don't have that degree of like indecisiveness. But like the thing that we were talking about earlier, like going to a restaurant and like having to decide, like, you know, if I can look up the menu beforehand and kind of have an idea, it's not even that I need to know what I want. I just have to have an idea of like what the options are, because if I'm given too many options, I need a longer time to process like what I want because I'm a feelings-based person and not like, I think that's probably the difference between me and Chidi. I think Chidi's probably like a, a thinker, like a TJ in the Myers-Briggs uh, functions thing. And I'm a feeler. And so I just have to know, like, I just have to see what I'm feeling about it. And sometimes that process takes a little longer. And so like the fork in the dishwasher was really, it was so visceral because it's such a like clear analogy. I was just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You're just like, especially when someone like pressures you to do it. So it was really great to see a character like Chidi go through that, especially because he's black. And that's something you don't see a lot on television of like diverse characters, especially black people experiencing anxiety because there's, you know, all these stereotypes and tropes that are so negative. And this is like the strong black women and like, you know, a strong black man and all this stuff where it's like you, they take away the like emotion, like the deeper emotions that everybody feels black people do. <laughs> it's a uh, really great to see a character like Chidi just on television. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading this article that Malcolm Venable wrote about how Chidi helped him navigate his own anxiety. 
really enjoyed reading it because it really, he was like really vulnerable about realizing that he has anxiety while being highly competent at the same time, which can exist at the same time. You can be highly competent while extremely anxious. Even though Chidi will hyperventilate when faced with every single challenge, he's going to move forward and still be strong, right? He just not in like non-anxious way. <laughs> yeah, like you said, there's expectations for Black men to be decisive and bold and courageous. And not have feelings. You can still be a Black man and be anxious and not have this traditional portrayal of masculinity. I identify with Chidi a lot because he has a tendency to kind of imagine the worst case scenario or a million different scenarios. And I think I might have mentioned that I have what I call chess brain, where I think about all every single possible move. <laughs> but I can't play chess. <laughs> Jenny's the only person that is not my brother's who's ever beaten me at chess. And it was really fantastic to lose to her. You're so good at losing. <laughs> Like, free of any uh, ego whatsoever. No, I'm really bad at winning. I have a really big ego when I win. Don't talk me up too much. <laughs> That's an interesting switch up, though. But also, so we were talking about earlier about us all being Hufflepuffs, because I feel like that's the the thing of, like... It's because I need to prove myself. A so good sportsman. <laughs> if I win, I'm like, see, I can do it. But, yeah. if I, but if I lose, I'm just like, good job, Jenny. That's adorable. So... That the uncertainty of how other people will act, especially within a scenario, will like drive me crazy, right? Because you can never predict how other people act. And obviously, the solution is to let go of that and not be able to try not to control other people or predict what other people do. It's really hard. I know. I just want to be prepared for how they're going to react to things. Yeah. So that I can react accordingly. Exactly. Just like Chidi, the constant struggle between the struggle to weigh the needs of other people against my own is also really difficult because there's no right decision, is there? It's just decision to have you benefit from something or someone else benefit from it. Yeah. I mean, I've learned these things about myself before I came to the good place, but it like helps encapsulate like why I like personality tests. Like I introduced myself, I'm a Hufflepuff, Enneagram 9, INFJ, because... They tell me a lot about myself so that I can react to others accordingly, which is so Enneagram 9 of me because it's like in the Enneagram system, like listeners can Google it or whatever, but an Enneagram 9 is one of those types that constantly gives up their own happiness and security and voice in order for other people to be able to talk. And, and so like you're having a conversation and everyone's talking and you have something to say, but you can't get it out because everyone else is talking and you don't want to intrude and you don't want to interrupt because you don't want anyone else to feel like they're being interrupted. It's that thing that I think Chidi kind of has too. And so he just like embodies like this person where I'm like, yeah, this is why I learn all these things about myself because it helps me both interact with other people and also try not to fall too deeply into those like negative habits that seem like I'm being really selfless, but I'm still not, I guess, not being good. But going back into the good place idea, I'm losing points because like I could have said something and I didn't because I was afraid or didn't want to interrupt or whatever. That's why I like use those systems to like identify myself because literally if you look them up, you probably learn everything <laughs> you need to know about me. <laughs> yeah. That's a hard decision to speak up or to let other people talk. Life is full of extremely 
Some people find them easy. We do not. <laughs> Extremely <laughs> difficult decisions. And that's why I relate to cheating so much. What I've learned from my therapist is I should try to disregard extremes. Do you have like conversations in your head before you have a conversation with someone? Yes. And you're like, of course, several going both ways. Like, oh, it could go well. It could go terribly. Let me plot out which both ways. <laughs> and then are you extremely disappointed when it goes the wrong way? I don't think it ever really goes the way you think it will. Yes, it never goes either way. It doesn't go any way you think will. So why bother even trying thinking of it? I know, but like, what else are you going to do? I'm always like so certain it's going to go one way and then it is disastrous. And I'm so <laughs> disappointed <laughs> and upset with myself. <laughs> it's probably not disastrous, right? Right. In like the actual scheme of things. But personally, it's disastrous. Yeah. Like you'll, you know, have expectations about, I know when I was job hunting, it'd be like, I'd have the conversation in my head about like how I would get the job and how I would tell all the people and what I would do. Like, I really convinced myself that if I talk about something too much, I'll jinx it. But then I'm always constantly thinking about it and therefore kind of jinxing it. It's that thing that like debate that goes on in my head, like, oh, I'm thinking about this too much or I've told too many people about this. So now it's not going to happen I don't know what you do. I still haven't figured it out. Like, it changes so frequently. On the other hand, you can try to think, I'm trying to secret this into the world. Right. And then, but that's the disappointing part. That's the disastrous part when it doesn't happen. Because it's like, but I thought I manifested this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. <laughs> For sure. Danielle, you wanted to talk about Eleanor and Tani. Okay. So then moving on to Eleanor and Tahani's upbringing, they both had really toxic parents. And it's weird because it's almost like in opposite ways, but at the same time... The same? Because it's like Eleanor's parents were like super negligent and they had no boundaries and Tahani's were very overbearing with extreme boundaries. So Eleanor became a very like, why bother, like, fuck them type of person. Whereas Tahani became like, obsessed with needing to impress everyone. Both of them were, were raised to believe that they weren't deserving of love or good enough. And they weren't like really their authentic selves because their concern was more in how others perceive them. Do you think that's true? With Tahani, probably. I think that Eleanor became the worst version of herself due to the negligence. And she just expects people to ignore her or do her wrong. Yeah, that's she became the way she is because of that. It's just interesting because, like, they're from, like, such opposite worlds. Quite literally. <laughs> yeah. Tall, short, American-British, like, in so many ways. <laughs> Trailer park trash and, like, really posh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, like, because of their toxic family dynamics, they ended up being, like, more alike than either of them realized that they would be, like, when they met each other. It should really be, like, the opposite upbringings were healthy versus unhealthy. So they actually had like very similar upbringings, if that makes any sense. It's nice because then like Eleanor gets closure with her mom on Earth, which causes her mom to then start becoming like a better person. And Tahani's parents validate her and Camilla once they make it to the good place, as we discussed earlier. I feel like Eleanor and Tahani like teaching each other that like they both deserve love. And obviously like Chidi and Jason and all of them helping them too, like help them help other people. Everyone's just helping each other. It's all about balance, you know? I also want to touch on Kristen Bell because I know that she's opened up recently in the past few years about how she also lives with anxiety and depression. 
and it's always nice to have a person in the media in real life kind of open up about their experience to show people it's real and even they suffer with it. She presents as a very bubbly human being. And for a while, that's what she wanted to present. But she felt like it was being dishonest to the audience and to people. And she thought she could help people more by showing the whole truth and who she really was. And show that she's suffering from it, but also getting better. And just like her, you can get help from your family, from therapists, from support systems. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, I'm much more inclined to like follow or care about a celebrity that actually like admits that they're human. Yes, I was literally thinking that just now. I think it's probably why Chris Evans is my favorite Chris. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Because he's talked about like being really anxious and, you know, for someone who was literally Captain America, you're like, oh, come on, please. And like for someone who's an actor, it's like, come on, please. But it's very clear if you watch him. That is true. And so I just appreciated that, like, you could try to hide it. But, like, it's evident enough where the fact that he admitted to it, it's just like, oh, yeah, and it's fine. Like, you can be Captain America and you can be a cool, successful actor and still, like, suffer with anxiety and stuff. So I think it's, yeah, usually my favorite celebrities are the ones who, I'm a person and I'm normal. (laughs) And not like the celebrities are just like you kind of way. Yeah, like they recognize that they're a celebrity and they have privilege and whatever, but they're at the same time, they're like, but being a human is fucking hard. Yeah. Because like when we were kids, I don't feel like celebrities ever really did that. Well, they were also demonized. And if they did, then they were seen as like lunatics. Like Britney Spears exactly. like shaved her head so she was a, a psycho. And I think it got masked a lot with like drug problems and like alcohol abuse in a way that I think is getting better in Hollywood now for some people. So I think people who did suffer with that and like have mental health stuff that they were struggling with, they would turn to alcohol and and drugs and stuff, especially child actors who kind of always were perceived as having gone off the rails. But, you know, they're put into this high pressure cooker of an industry that's going to give you mental health stuff like that's just going to mess with you in various ways. And then they didn't get to turn to any kind of support system or, you know, help that they needed. And so they had alcohol and drugs and stuff that they were able to use much earlier and with more frequency than a lot of people can. So I'm hoping it's better than it was, especially in the 90s for like people who we were looking up to. Do we have any final thoughts about The Good Place? I like the concept that if soulmates do exist, they're not found, they're made. Just a really great line. A really great line. Yeah. <laughs> just like, why is Mike Shore great at, at this? It, it just like goes against everything that like we were taught as kids that like, you know, you just immediately fall in love and that's what it is. But it's actually, that's lust, not love. Yeah. I also want to read a quote. <laughs> this is a cheaty quote um, that... Basically, why choose to be good every day if there's no guaranteed reward that we can count on in the afterlife? I argue that we choose to be good because of our bonds with other people and our innate desire to treat them with dignity. At the intersection of empathy and ethics is the realization that we are not in this alone. I love that line. Yeah, and I 100% agree with it. The last one I'm going to read is by Jason. Do it in his voice. (laughs) Okay, homies, you're sad. I can tell because you have the same look on your face that my teachers did when I raised my hand in class. But let's be happy. Yes, excellent. Thank you. (laughs) I really do like the concept that if you can decide to be happy in a moment when you're hurting or frustrated or anything like that, 
then it can completely turn the situation around. And that it's like, it's such a hard thing to do, but that's something that I have practiced doing with myself a lot. And it has, it has really helped me. Yeah, I think that's my general philosophy. But it's annoying that it's been difficult to do it because I've seen lots of pushback against the idea of like, you can just decide to be happy. Because I do, like, I acknowledge that that is not always true. Like, that is not a thing that you can do. Yeah, of course. It's extremely hard. It's just good to hear someone else in 2020 say that because that is something that I try to practice. And I know that it's not something I want to like proclaim because I know that not everyone can do it. And I've had that like realization. But I think that, like you said, if you can do it, I think it depends on the situation too and like how deeply it can and does affect you or whatever. But I'm definitely just decide to be over it kind of person and try to be happy about it. And then like that turns around and then I've like moved on from whatever it was. Yeah. I will dwell in bad feelings for an extremely long time. So that's my way of not doing it is just like, if something is going wrong, I have to actively be like, okay, no, it just takes a lot of conscious practice. For sure. Because if you're anxious and unhappy all the time, you have to constantly try and think, I'm happy. Yeah, you have to constantly think about it. And there's just moments when you're like, what is the point of being upset right now when I could just be happy? <laughs> that is literally what I think in my head. Like, literally, word for word. For me, it's like the this is fine meme, where it's just like, I just have to tell, this is fine. It's not even necessarily about, like, happiness. It's just like, this is not a problem. Like, this is fine. And just, like, convincing myself that this is fine. Like, what we're going through right now, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and then you eventually, it's like, oh, it is fine. Okay. <laughs> Exactly. Well, because we talked about the Good Place podcast so much in the honor of that podcast at the end, Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean on the Good Place, by the way, he always asks the guests and himself, what's good? So you can start constant yeah. in this completely uncertain world right now. What's good? I would say besides the good place, because that's what we were talking about. And that is definitely good. I would say that um, video chats are good. Like you're saying, you know, we are living in a very uncertain, crazy time. And I know that I'm super introverted. And like, I live by myself, I like living by myself. But sometimes you can spend too much time by yourself, uh, especially when you have an anxious brain. So <laughs> the ability to still be able to talk to your friends and family and loved ones is good. Because despite how introverted I am, I am somewhat social, like the point of me being introverted is that I gain energy from being by myself. And then I have like a lot of social energy. And like I did on this podcast just now, I just like ramble and talk and talk until I get it out. Video chats with friends while you're all in your separate apartments staying at home is good. Jenny, what's good? Um, have you heard the word of the untamed? <laughs> all I think about is the untamed. I go to sleep listening to the soundtrack. I wake up. It's stuck in my head. It is bad. Anyway, for any of you who don't know, it's good. The Untamed is a, a fantasy Chinese drama about two ghost hunters who are in love. And there's betrayal. There's death. There's coming back to life. There's everything. You'll love it. Try it out. And they're gay, right? Not according to the Chinese government. <laughs> 
I was gonna ask if their in love was a I can see it that it's clear or if it was actually textual in the show. It was it's textual in the book it's based on so close enough. Oh, interesting. What about you, Danielle? Well, what I would say is what's good is all of the seamstresses I'm seeing who've been just like busting their asses to make masks and scrub caps and stuff to donate to like hospitals and anyone who needs uh, PPE because our government is fucking terrible. And I am I'm hopeful that people will start realizing that that's socialism, not capitalism. Ah, nice. So if you can support all those people who are doing that because they're using their personal stash and their time and their money to be donating these things. And if you can't financially support their businesses, at least follow them on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. I've been giving different ones shout outs on my Instagram in my stories. I feel like that actually perfectly encapsulated how the podcast does what's good. It's like, Someone will say a TV show. Someone will say something really, really deep. And someone will like be right in the middle. <laughs> so where can people find you online? Mostly on Twitter at Constar24. And then most places, Constar or Constar24 will find me. Cool. I'll put it in the notes. And thank you for being on. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been great. I learned stuff. Cognitive and emotional empathy. Okay. Uh, please take a moment to subscribe, review, and rate us. It's the easiest way to help support our podcast. Like I was just saying with all these seamstresses, <laughs> rate us, <laughs> like us, share us. Love us. So let us know what your favorite thing about this episode was and do that on a review on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page or whatever podcast app that you use. Or just come chat with us on Facebook or Instagram. Our social medias are Fandom and Wellness on Twitter, Fandom and Wellness on Instagram, and Fandom and Wellness on Facebook. You can also find Arkita at Classy Rebel Design on Instagram and me at Fan Mailbox on Instagram. You can find me at Little Petal on Instagram. Be kind and take no shirt. <laughs> Perfect. That was wonderful. Bye.